Welcome to our weekly, we mean weekly Wednesday night shear. Wow, we just passed Hanukkah. And um, according to the secular world, it entered into the new year. Shear, of course, dedicated. Nachman Yaakov and Sihish. And Bachev Hanabas. And halakhically, we have a little upcoming event of Asara Batavis. It's Hashem Sunday, the Sarah Batavis. Asarah Batavis, the only fast aside for Tishbab and Kippur that could come out on Shabbos. That cannot come out, sorry. That would be fasted on Shabbos, but it cannot come out on Shabbos. But if Asarah Batavis come out on Shabbos, we would fast, unlike Tishbab, that we push off. Now, on Asarah Batavis on a Friday, then we fast into Shabbos. And of course we try to Tavon Kabbalah Shabbos as early as possible so that people can end the fast. Asada Batavis is a stringent fast. Fast does not start Saturday night. Start Sunday morning, look at your local listings, where you ever you live, <coughs> see what time the Lisa Shacha is. Then it goes, of course, until Nacht or 35 minutes after Shkia, after sunset. We all think of Tishabab. All the dates marking, remembering the destruction of the temple. The truth to be told, all this began on Asara Batavis. And therefore, it is quite a very it's quite a severe day, quite a stringent day, and quite a stringent fast. In today's generation, people have taken the thought, the train, the thought, the train of thought of um, always looking for the ways out, and um, you get questions and calls about this predicament and that predicament. Uh, a pregnant woman, a newly pregnant, uh, just a newly new mother, um, someone who hasn't been feeling well, someone who has dehydrated, somebody this, somebody that. And people look for all different reasons not to have to fast. We'd love to say the real reason not to have to fast, which would be the coming of Mashiach and the building of the Temple. 
A person cannot not fast without asking direct permission from a love. And whereas there are other fast days, for example, some Gedalia, where there are many leniencies, because some Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, which takes place after Rosh Hashanah, Gedalia Menachikim was only killed on Rosh Hashanah, really. So the fast itself is a nitcha already. So therefore, many people look to find leniencies in that fast. It's only a couple of hours, really. Most people don't wake up before sun sunrise, and they can survive the course of the day without eating or drinking. But unfortunately, when you tell somebody that they have to fast, it gets hard. We're reading the last Pashas, the sale of Yosef, going back further, the birth of the children of Yaakov, the attention that Yosef Atzadik is given, but his brothers feel unmerited, Ultimately, they sell Yosef Atzadik, and we read about what goes on with Yosef Atzadik, how much he withstands in Mitzrayim in Egypt. We spoke about last week. And finally, Yosef tells the brothers, "You cannot come back here to get food unless you bring said bro- said brother with you." When he asked them if this was the whole family, because he told them he had a magic goblet <laughs> that saw what was going on, saw their ages, and saw who was older, put them in the orders, etc. So they were a little bit um, weary of him. And when he asked, about any other brothers, any other relatives, they were skeptical not to say. Because they wouldn't say, they'd only get in trouble. They worried he would catch them. So, they said about the other brother, about Binyamin. In that case, he said, if you're not spies, when you're not trying to, kill, to rob us, and not trying to kill us, Don't return without your younger brother. Obviously this was a ploy on the age's part to get to see his younger brother Binyamin. Needless to say, being only two children from Rachel, he missed very, very much. And they come with Binyamin. Again, the magic goblet comes into play.
it's planted on Binyamin. And Binyamin is detained. Vayigash Elav Yehuda. Come to our parsha. Yehuda comes forth to Yosef. This was already a, a breach in security. Nobody was allowed to get close to Yosef. People that spoke to the king had to speak from a distance. Another issue, throughout their conversations, Yosef is using a translator. Yosef claims not to speak Hebrew. However, his son does. But they didn't know necessarily it was his son. They didn't know exactly how this other person did understand Hebrew. But this person was the translator, and therefore many things that are co- many conversations in the Torah are actually repeated between Yosef and his brothers, because it's once they said it to the interpreter, and once Yosef repeats it. But Yehuda, we spoke many times about how Yehuda steps forth very brazenly and, as you say in America, gets in Yosef's face because he wanted his brother freed. Yehuda had a lot riding on this, as we say. Namely, he he promised his father that he would be responsible and he would bring back his brother safely. So if now Binyamin detained, God forbid anything happens to him, it's all on Yehuda's head. Yehuda throws away any caution. He abandons safety and he steps up to the plate. And he goes to Yosef, and he screams in his ear practically. Medish tells us all about what happened, what transpires, how Yehuda comes forth, and the bro- and Menashe and Ephraim bang their feet. Yehuda showed his strength, they showed their strength. It was a uh, it was an adventure. But ultimately Yehuda says it into into Yosef's ears. And he tells him, he says, you better let my brother go. And then Yehuda says, Don't get angry at me. You know you're like Parai. Now, this is probably the biggest insult that Yehuda could have given Yosef. Because throughout the conversations, whenever Yosef wants to, um, shall we say, deter from the truth slightly, he swore in Parai's name. Rashi tells us, when he says, Hey Parai, Parai's life, 
Whenever he said things like that, it was only because it was he was he was lying. So here he tells him, You're just like Pare. <coughs> and the question becomes, of course, why is it that Yehuda, the politician, starts off first screaming and yelling and then tries to be a politician and be all pleasant with the pleasantries? And the answer we know is because of Stutvesh Reitman, and it's although we've said it so many times, it's an extremely, extremely important lesson, a life lesson. As a Stutvesh Reitman, it hurts. We scream. When a person slams the hand in the door, they don't negotiate with their hand. Did you hurt? Do you have? Does it hurt you? Are you having pain? <laughs> oh, we are having pain. Okay, I better scream. It would be a little bit off color. I don't hear. So obviously, the person has wounds, injured. They scream immediately. And here, Yehuda was in pain for his younger brother, Binyamin, in jail, and therefore abandons every protocol and begins with screaming and yelling and banging his feet. Only after does he try to do the political way when he sees it's not working. But the first reaction as a person has to be when we see or hear something that's not right is to yell and to scream. And now what happened today in the, our land, in the Holy Land, with this poor soldier from the IDF, or an Israeli soldier, our brother, was pronounced guilty for manslaughter, for killing a terrorist. Twist and turn the story however you'd like. The bottom line knows, everyone knows it was a terrorist. He was unable to fight back. He was yes able, he was not able. They are so false. And they're so fake. You don't know. They can lie there and look like they're dead. And they make all these videos of just that. They lay out the children in the street and they take videos of, look, an Israeli bomb just blew all all them up. And they lay there as if they're dead. And then when they turn off the camera, you see them all get up and walk away. So they're so false. They're such liars. Deceiving. How is he to know? This knife-yielding terrorist was put put to rest and didn't need to be killed. He couldn't know that. And so when he does kill him, Ironically, the sister of the judge that passed the verdict was an Arab spy. And still, this is a judge in the Israeli courts. So it's Shumu Shamayim, we need to cry out for this. And we need to say, we need to let our voices be heard. And if there's any petitions going around, they need to be signed. Although they will help nothing, probably. But every Jew needs to understand the same responsibility to say a capital for him. Say a prayer that this boy be exonerated, this boy be set free.
Vayigash Elav Yehuda, when it hurts, we have to scream. Let us move on to the Pasha. Yesav HaTzadik is ecstatic to know that Eid Avichai, my father, is still alive. And he sends his father gifts. Uli Aviv Sholach Chapter 45, verse 23. Perik Memhei Pasach of Gimel. Ulaviv Shalach Kozeis Asorach Hamidim Nesim Mituv Mitzrayim. And to his father he sent, as this was, ten donkeys loaded up with the best of Egypt. Shalach Kozeis, says Rashi. What does that mean? Kichesh ben Azel, like this amount. Umawa Kichesh ben, what was the Kichesh ben? Asara Khamirim, Ten Khamirim. Commentaries ask Why does the Pasik write the word Kazais? Rash is translating Kazais like this amount. Kahajbanazah. But Rashi already says the Khajbin. He says, the Pesach says already, He says already the amount. So what's the Kazais? It should say, To his father he sent ten donkeys. And we'd understand the Cheshbin of the Chameirim. How many Chameirim do? Why does he have to write Kazais? We can explain this slightly. Yosef wanted his father to come down to Egypt as quick as possible. And we see that the Shvatim go back home to Etzisrael for a very, very short time to go bring back their father. So, there was no food in Etzisrael if there's no food, and that's why they came shopping for food, so they needed to go back with food. But they were only going for a very, very short time. They were coming right back to Mitzrayim. If they were coming right back to Mitzrayim, why the necessity for so much food? Ten donkeys worth of Nesim Etuv Mitzrayim. It's only for a short time. They needed only a little bit of food to tie them over till they pack up everything until they come. Therefore, the Pasek says the word Kozais. He sent to his father Kozais. What does this mean, Kozais, like this? Like this Cheshbin. Yosef sent according to the Cheshbin that already he learned about. Yosef heard that Pare sent gifts to Yaakov. And he said to them, Tano has been, he tells Yosef to tell his brothers, Tano has been 
So if Paris and gives to Yaakov, of course, out of the covet for his father, Yosef had to send gifts. At least at least the same amount that Pari sent. So therefore when it says, Yosef sent more gifts according to the Cheshbon that Pari sent already. Although we didn't know, we don't exactly know what Pari sent. Therefore the Pasuk continues, it says, So the Kazais is really a translation of how much he sent in comparison to Pari. So the Asadah Hamedim, the Pasuk says, what is the Cheshbon? The Cheshbon is the Asadah From this Rashi that we learn that not Pari sent these Chamerim, Yosef sent the Chamerim. Ki Cheshben Azeh Shalach Pari. Because this is what Pari also sent. He also sent ten loaded donkeys. But Pari already said, Tanu has Be'irichem. Each one should load up from their city. If that's the case, if Yasef was the only one that was staying in Mitzrayim still, so 11 Shvatim went home. 11 Shvatim went home, why is only 10? Yasef and his brothers were 12. And all the brothers went home except for Yasef. That means 11 brothers went home. And he was saying it, Pare was saying, that he's sending it back for each one of them, a donkey. In that case, why were there 10 and not 11? Back in Parashim Kates, the first time the Taylor mentions that the brothers came down to Mitzrayim, Lishber Borbe Mitzrayim, to bring food from Mitzrayim, Yasef captured, arrested Shimon. And Shimon was detained in Egypt. And he was detained until the brothers came back. They didn't come looking for him even. Until they had to go back to Egypt to get food again. Now that there was a hunger in, in Eretz Canaan, even though Yosef had Shimon by him, he didn't hold back Shimon's Chamer. He loaded up Shimon's Chamer. And he loaded up for his father and for the family that was there. And then everybody else took home a Chamer with them. So when the Yidin came back, when the brothers came back to Mitzrayim again, together with Binyamin, there was only ten people. There was only ten people and ten donkeys. Because they didn't have Shimon with them. So they came down to Mitzrayim with ten. They had to go back up with ten. (laughs) 
Tano's Birchem was only on these ten donkeys that were there. Because Shimon's Chamer was in Canaan. So therefore Yosef also did the same thing and also sent only ten. The meeting between Yosef and Yehuda. The significance between the two between this meeting according to Chassidus, according to Kabbalah this was Mashiach. This was a discussion of how to bring Mashiach. Whether or not to bring Mashiach on the spot. Where do they come off to discuss these things? The famous story of Yosef Kado, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. He once had a question, a terror question. He was learning something, and in a certain subject he had a question, he could not find an answer. He toiled and toiled, and he fasted for three days until the answer was revealed to him. Baruch Hashem, now that he had the answer, he left the Bismarck, she was going home. He had not been home for three days. And he walked by a cheder. He walked by where little boys were learning. And he hears one boy ask his question. <coughs> Asking his question. And he's flabbergasted. Asking his question that he had and didn't have an answer for three days. So he figured it's a question and the Whoever it is asked is going to be stuck with this question. Lo and behold, he hears another boy answer the question. (laughs) He was devastated. He was devastated. He spent three days in fasting and prayer to get this answer to this question and here the little boy (coughs) in conversation with his chaverim answers the story answers the the shayla what did he do wrong? how could this happen? And he was quite devastated over this. And then finally it was explained to him. That the fact that he toiled on this question, the Aveda that he put into this question and answer, this service, this Aveda, made it possible 
for the world to now understand this concept. The concept at the point, at that time, was totally foreign. It was foreign to the world. The world was not able to fathom this concept. And definitely not get an answer to it. Only because Yosef Karo worked on this and brought about the answer into this world, only now was the world able to get this answer. Um... Okay. Yaakov Inu is sitting in Eretz Canaan. Obviously, the word has reached him by this point that Yosef indeed was alive. What did Yosef send? Yosef sends agolis, wagons, to his father. The Pasuk tells us again chapter 45 from the verses 27 and 28 The Pasha, when it's read on Shabbos, or as we do Chitas every day, Pasha is divided up into seven parts. When we learn Chitas, we learn from the beginning on Sunday, from the beginning to Shani, on, sun, on Monday from Shani to Shlishi, etc. And the same on Shabbos when they call up the Koyan, they call them up for the first Aliyah, the Levi for the second for Shani, and thereafter Yisrael is a Shlishi. And they call the seven aliyahs, and then ultimately, Maftir is a separate aliyah on its own. Amongst the many customs, Pashva Yigash is from the rarities of the Pashas. We were not sure where to stop. Mini Israel, we finish off. Shlishi. 
some have a custom for a V. The reading of this part of the Pasha, the Chiruach Yaakov Avim. Vayemi Yisrael Rav Eid, Rav Eid, Rav Eid Yisuf Chai, Mini Chai. This becomes the beginning of the V, or Chamishi. It's the middle of a story. It's the middle of an Indian here. Why would the tailor break this up? Perhaps, perhaps you can say the reason it gets divided this way many places is brought down the reason that our forefathers and the brothers chose the profession of being shepherds Because this would not interfere with their divine service of God. Yosef was different. In that, he involved himself in worldly matters. A Mishnah Lamelech, a second to the king, and he literally ruled the entire Egypt. But still in all, he was able to remain with all his devotions, all his godly devotions. But this was not all that made Yosef so great. The fact that he was not affected by the toil and the hustle and the bustle of Egypt, and that he was still able to serve God the way he needed to, this was not the do-all and end-all of how great Yosef was. It's only a side thing. The fact that he protected himself from all the decadence and the evil that went on in Egypt... Not only did he not get affected by it, the opposite happened. He affected Egypt. He ruled over them so much so that he conquered them. He had them do bris mila. So now we know why we break this up in two different aliyahs. The fact that he saw the wagons, this showed Yaakov that Yosef is really still in tune. What was the hint with the Agolis? Yosef mentions to Yaakov, he sends him a message, you want to believe it's me? The last subject in Tera that we were learning before I left was the subject of Egla Rufa. The laws pertaining to if a man is found and the person is found dead in the field and we don't know how he died, 
Teda tells us we measure to the nearest city and the elders of the city need to come out, they need to bring a calf that never did any work, bring it to a place, an area, a piece of land, a barren piece of land that was never worked on, and the calf is decapitated, and all the, that goes on, the video that they say, Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into the whole dinim of Eglarufa. But this was the last din that Yaakov and Yosef were studying. And therefore Yosef sends now a message to his father with these wagons, these agolis. Agolis being the same word as Eglo, a calf. To tell him, look, the same way I learned with you, the Egla Rufa, I've been learning since. The mere fact that Yasef remembered which parish in the Teda he was involved with his father, and he explained to his father, 22 years prior, it shows us how the Teda he was guarding and keeping the terror within himself. When Yaakov saw this, Vatachi Yaakov Mizeh. Sha'omad Yaakov Yaakov now was revived. He came to life. He had a new life on the fact that he saw Yaakov standing in his righteousness. But this wasn't really any news to Yaakov. Because by Yaakov also we find 20 years he was in the house of Lavan Arami and he worked with his full heart but still Shalom B'Terasei he was complete in Lavan Garti Tayag Mitzvah Shemarti So therefore we stop at this point. Now we go to another Aliyah entirely and we read another story within the same story. The second thing is the fact that Yasef affected on Egypt. He brought up Egypt. He brought them up to a level. After the fact of Atchiruach Yaakov the Torah answers and says, Rab a Yosef Beni, which is much, harbimi many, much of me. And this is the hint that he has, that the concept of Yosef was the ruler of Egypt and conquered Egypt. This is a chilish for Yaakov. Because the fact is, yes, Yaakov survived by Lovan. But when he left Lavan, he left Lavan the same Lavan. Mashenke and Yesav Tzadik turned Mitzrayim upside down. Several years ago, many years ago, in Lyon, France, 
They had a dinner. Chabad had a dinner. Rabbi Gerevich, the Chabad Shliach. And one of the guests of honor has got up to speak. He said, I will tell you what brought me to Lubavitch. So I was always affiliated, I always came in here, I always went in. Rabbi Gerevich is a very passionate man, a very, very special soul he was. And I wanted to go into a business venture. I wanted to build a hotel and then within the hotel build a college for teaching hotel management. This is a phenomenal idea. Something was needed and would have really worked well. No. So I told Rebekah about this. I was looking for to raise the money for it. I didn't have the capital. I'd have to get investors, obviously. I was talking to Rabbi Gerevich about it. Rabbi Gerevich says to me, let's go to New York. And let's get a bracha from the Rebbe. It's a big venture. Can't do this without a bracha from the Rebbe. So we went. I got online for dollars. And... <laughs> Obviously, I can't bring the plans to the Rebbe and show the Rebbe the plans and talk to everything and discuss it with the Rebbe here because there are thousands of people waiting to see the Rebbe. Who am I to stop everybody? So he says, I came before the Rebbe and not only can I not make my presentation at length, I couldn't make it short either. My tongue was tied. I, I couldn't say a word. The Rebbe gave me a dollar. This is for you. And a second dollar. This is for what you're building. And the Rebbe said, it's very important though you make sure that every door in the building has a mezuzah. Now, this fellow says, I was I was mesmerized. How did the Rebbe know why I was here? I didn't write a letter prior. The Rebbe knew exactly who I was. And gave me a blessing. I said, this is a pure home run. There's no ifs, ands, and buts. It's going to be successful. By game, the building was completed. Mezuzahs were put on all the doors, and by the Chanukah Sabayis, by the inauguration, had every big shot in France. Every personality man was there. It was amazing, and when the dust settled, it wasn't so amazing. It wasn't taking off. It just wasn't happening.
another month, a third month, a fourth month, and I kept praying and trying, advertising. The hotel was dragging me deeper and deeper into debt. Until, after a few years, I found myself millions of francs in debt. There was no other option. I opened up a chumash, and there I saw on top of the page my solution to my problem. It said, Chapter 13. So I declared bankruptcy. Yeah. In Atlanta, Georgia, when you work for the IRS, you laugh at that joke. Okay. I declared bankruptcy. And it was a little awkward. Because it smelled funny. Millions of francs went to where? How did I end up in bankruptcy here? How did this thing not work? And I knew I was going to be in trouble for this. I did nothing. I was not negligent. And I didn't imagine that I'd be giving me such a bracha that I'd be going through this. And yet, here I am. Well, the government was not ready to let this rest. And lo and behold, a few days later, I got a knock on the door in my office. A not very pleasant looking fellow. Actually looking very, very anti-Semitic. Walks into my office. He looks at the picture of the Rebbe on the wall and he snuffs his nose. Says something under his breath. And he sat down. And he took my books and he told me to leave. And after many hours, I knew things were not going to be good. He left the building. A few days later, I got a summons to a trial of being tried for fraud. Being tried for fraud. do we do? What could I possibly do? The worst part was, it became such a famous case, no lawyer wanted to touch it. I couldn't hire a lawyer. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I'm in such debt. I'm not worth talking to. The day of the trial arrives, And the first one called to the stand is my wonderful friend here, this IRS agent. This, uh, not IRS, I'm sorry. The uh, agent that came to investigate. And he gets up there and they swear him in and the, and the judge says to him, No, obviously he didn't say it in that language. And he starts to say, Your Honor, I walked into this case I started looking through his books 
And I saw through and through the whole lie. The whole fraud, the whole geneva, the thievery that was going on here. And I said to myself, this man is going away for a long time. But, Your Honor, that was my original concern, thought. I must tell you, after revisiting, redoing the calculations, I find this man is totally, impeccably innocent. <coughs> he did nothing wrong. This was a stroke of bad luck and everything just fell through for him. But he as a person did nothing wrong here and I make a motion that no charges be brought against him. Needless to say, he was the key witness, the key to the whole case. The judge calls him up to the stand, to the, to the table, discusses something with him. The judge lets down the hammer, the anvil, and says, innocent. Ge'ahim. Needless to say, because I was in bankruptcy, I declared bankruptcy, and the courts deemed me innocent, the government had to pick up the tab of the debt, and thereafter, it all of a sudden started to flourish. All of a sudden, it started to become viable business. Not only viable, I, I did very well there. One day, about a month later, after the trial, I get a phone call. I recognize the voice. It was my inspector, the guy who went from the angel of death to the angel of salvation. I need to talk to you, he says. Meet me in this this place, a deserted lot. And so, I went out to meet him. He said, I didn't want anyone to see us talking, because who knows what kind of repercussions will happen. I need to tell you my story. I need to tell you what happened here. Because I'm sure you must be plotting to find out how one day I wanted to hang you, and the next day I set you free. I'm Jewish. My wife and I survived the Holocaust. We ran away from Germany and we came to France. And we settled here. But I, like many other Yidin, felt that God deserted us. And therefore, I um, left everything behind. 
had no affiliation with Yiddishkeit whatsoever. Then I came to you, and I was really upset to see a Jew from Jew, the rabbi on the wall. So I looked with a negative eye through your books, and obviously I found discrepancies that were not really there. And that's why, obviously, we set the trial date. But then, I wanted to be sure before the trial. I wanted to make sure I have every I dotted, every T crossed. I don't want you to get away with anything. So I came back down to your place. And I started going through the building to see. Maybe it's all a facade. Maybe it's a building that's standing, but really, there's nothing here. I started going through the building. As I'm walking through the building, I noticed, as I told you, I'm Jewish. I noticed every door has a mezuzah. I said, you know what? It doesn't make sense. There are tens of doors here. If this guy was a fraud, if this guy was a guy that wanted to just rip somebody off, he would not invest the thousands of dollars, a small fortune here. Oh, sorry, I just got your text. Small fortune in in mezuzahs. So the fact that this fellow developed that he bought. All the, and I checked. I started to open up the cases. And I checked and I saw there was a mezuzah in every one. Samuel McCoy. So you spent v- veritably thousands and thousands of dollars to, to rip off the government? It made no sense. That's where it came to the realization something here is not the way it should be. Something here is not as bad as it, I think it is. I went back to your office. And I came into your office and I saw that picture. Again. And I saw the Rebbe looking at me. I said, not only do you put up mezuzahs, but you're a follower of such a person. And I could see on his eyes, in his eyes, the holiness that he represents. And I took out your books again, and I went through them again, and I found that I indeed erred. And that you, Daka, were not the thief that we made you to be. I want to show you something, though. And he takes out a bag that he was carrying. He opens it up. He shows him inside a pair of tefillin. 
because of everything that went down here, and I saw how you stood by your Yiddishkeit, and stood as a chassid, a staunch chassid, my wife and I decided we're going to do tshuva. I bought myself a pair of tefillin, and we are going to be once again from Yidden as we were before the war. So, he he tells this story, the supporter, and obviously had everybody mesmerized, thinking how this person, what he never has been through, but how the sincerity of a Yid, by doing the mitzvahs the way they're supposed to do them, prevails in such a way that it affected even another Jew. We have a very interesting issue in this expression still. He mourned on his son, says the Tosik, back in Vayeshev, chapter 37, verse 34. Many years, Rashi explains how many years? 22 years. Why? Because 22 years he did not do the mitzvah of honoring his father. Therefore we understand why Yosef was so desperate to get his father here, to Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father. And quickly bring him down. Because he knew the punishment was over. He did not want his father punished an extra second. And since the punishment was over, his father did not deserve to suffer another second, and he wanted him brought down immediately. From this we learn. Even sometimes we need to punish somebody. Chas there needs to be a smell deicha, pushing away with the left hand. We still need to be very, very careful not to enforce it, over, over-enforce it. And while pushing away with the left hand, the person has to still have the behavior of with the second side so whereas Yaakov was being punished for what he didn't honor his father his son honored him in such a way that said not an extra second should he suffer Claudius Yisrael has suffered enough this Sunday as we spoke is a Sarah a fast day, a terrible day of mourning we pray that these days should be turned over to days of joy and happiness and that this Shabbos already we will be able to we will be able to bring us come forth to the Almighty to the Ebishta in the Beis Hamikdash Hashlishi in Yerushalayim Irakedesh with Melech HaMashiach at our Shabbat Shalom to all we should not have to God forbid fast at all but if we do It should be an easy fast for everyone. Shabbat Shalom.